tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. We're here. I'm here. It's Monday. I think I'm here. Well, I suppose it's true to say I'm here wherever you are because, well, never mind. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's go. Let's open the big book. That one on the coffee table. Okay, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, Jonah most certainly existed. Um, Jonah was a prophet. Uh, let's see, he lived uh, in the times of the Assyrians. Let me look him up precisely. I should have done that, but you know me, I'm, I'm not the sharpest quill on the porcupine. Let's see here. Okay. He uh, was he he was from um, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was born in the ninth century BC, which would have been eight hundred something, and uh, then uh, he died in the eighth uh, century, which would have been oh the seven hundreds. So he most certainly existed. He he we see him in uh, other uh, in other literature. Uh, so he existed. Um, now the story of Jonah and the whale, and I remember hearing someone say, I wouldn't care if the Bible says that not that the Jonah swallowed the whale, but uh, not that the whale swallowed Jonah, but that Jonah swallowed the whale. I'd believe it. You have to understand <clears throat> that there are such things as parables in the Bible. And I have no problem thinking that Jonah is a parable. I, I remember, well, let's look at the gospel reading first so that we get an idea of it. Um, uh, and and uh, we'll come back. Uh, uh, we'll come back to this. Um, again, we'll go the gospel, then we'll go back to Jonah. We have the story of the, of the, uh, <clears throat> of the good Samaritan in today's reading, uh, Luke, the 10th chapter. And there, you when you go to Israel, and I don't say if, but when, when you go to Israel, you will see the inn of the Good Samaritan. This is the place where the parable didn't happen. Huh? 
Jesus said, a man fell victim to robbers. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you a tall tale. I'm going to tell you a story. But most of us have the sense, this is a parable. No, it's history. It happened. If you ask a local guide, of course it happened. There's the place where it happened. And it's actually, they've kind of dolled the place up. It's on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Of course, there was an inn there. There were a number of them because they needed them. But it's a parable. It's a story that's a parable. This Jonah and the whale could well be a parable. Or it could have happened. I wasn't there. There is absolutely no historical uh, or archaeological evidence that at any point uh, the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, um, was converted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before the coming of Christ. Now, remember, I'm always telling you that from God's perspective, the first nine books of the Bible, or the first nine chapters of the Bible are, are literally true from God's perspective. That's how he sees it. I, I would venture that the story of Jonah is absolutely true from God's perspective. Oh. I know lots of Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. I call Skokie the Nineveh of the North Shore. I mean, my barber was a an Assyrian, a Ninevite. And the Nineveh Plain is considered the homeland of Assyrians. I know and love quite a number of Assyrians. I mean, I really have some very dear Assyrian friends. So whatever Jonah said <laughs> must have worked because they are devout after years, centuries, a millennium and more of anti-Christian persecution. They have maintained their faith at great cost and still do. And they have maintained their language. They speak Aramaic, uh, a language closely related to Hebrew. But this story itself may be a, a parable. And I don't think that that is, is a, a kind of weakening biblical literacy. I, I believe the Bible is, is, is a book of truth. Mo much of it, if not most of it, is history, <clears throat> meant to be history, written perhaps in a way that we don't understand it. But it has parables in it too, as is evidenced by the gospel today. All right, so Jonah and the whale. Don't give up on Jonah and the whale. May have happened just this way. So, set out for the great city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Now, the, Ninev the Ninevites, the Assyrians I know today, are sweethearts. They are just wonderful, dear people. Uh, I, I just, and the food is great. However, they had the reputation of of uh, of well Nazis in the ancient world they they um, practiced ethnic cleansing they 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 just eliminated peoples for the Lord to say to Jonah I want you to go to and there was a prophet Jonah he's one of the prophets uh, he's elsewhere as I said referenced in the scriptures for the Lord to say to Jonah I want you to go to Nineveh would be like saying to a rabbi, I want you to go to Berlin in 1942, 1943, and start denouncing the Nazis. What? You're crazy. That's a death sentence. So, Jonah Ray made ready to flee to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? It isn't the same as Tarsus. It's thought maybe it was in Spain, maybe it was Sardinia. It was, Tarshish is as far away as you can go. I remember that children's uh, book that was read to me when I was a child 
many years ago about from Kalamazoo to Timbuktu. Timbuktu was the end of the line. And uh, um, that's Tarshish. That's about as far away as you can get. So you know the story that a violent storm comes up and uh, uh, they cast lots and find out who responsible for this more uh, this this storm they're facing and it, it comes to jonah and he admits that i worship the lord and the wrath of god uh and and what god told me to do why would you do this why would you do this um so uh, th throw me overboard no we're not going to do that we'll be guilty of isn't this interesting he has to plead with them to throw him overboard. So he's not a coward, but on the other hand, they're virtuous. They don't want to do it. Uh, the men rode hard to regain the land, uh, and they said, We beseech you, Lord, let us not perish for taking this man's life. That's how this starts. Uh, so uh, they took Jonah, threw him into the sea, and uh, they offered sacrifice and made vows to the Lord. Well, then Jonah gets swallowed by the fish, and the Lord uh, commands the fish to spit Jonah up on the shore. Not long ago, there was a guy who, who was actually swallowed by a whale for a few minutes. I forget that story, but that I, that was actual. That was actually true. He was in the whale, and he got spat up. Wasn't there three days, three nights? But that was fairly recent, so I guess it could happen. So that's the story of Jonah. Now let's go to the story of... Uh, of uh, uh, the Samaritan, a, a great scholar of the law stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written? How do you read it? Isn't that interesting? Is how do you read it? Uh, <laughs> it isn't just what is written, but how do you read it? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, do you have the right interpretation of this? Or are you just assuming that you know what it means? Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, while you're being with your strength and with your mind. In Hebrew, it's just three things. With your heart, uh, let me think, with all your heart, with all your strength. And that word in Hebrew is very interesting. It's ma'od. Uh, <clears throat> it means, that's I think why they have two, two uh, words here, being and strength, to translate one. Ma'od means, it really means your your wealth, your strength, what... Uh, what you have. Uh, it isn't just, you know, I'm really going to work hard for the Lord. No. Have you given everything over to the Lord? Uh, it's it's a pretty strong word. And it translate there is mind, because the word mind uh, in Greek is psyche, um, which it, it's always uh, a problem to talk about the soul. Uh, but your your being and strength is your physicality. Your mind is, is the word is psyche. It's usually translated soul. We are. I I have puzzled over this. What is the relationship? Body, mind, and spirit. Usually we think of it as kind of a hierarchy: the spirit controlling the soul, controlling the body. I, I don't think that's what it is. We are we are spirits. In, incarnated incarnated spirits. I am a spirit, a living being reflecting the nature of God, who has an immortal soul, and who has a mortal body. That's the way I think of it now. Maybe I'm wrong. It's, to me, always been confusing because we think of spirit and soul as exactly the same thing, and St. Paul seems to indicate they're different. But that's, that's I may be very wrong about this. Um, St. Thomas also seems to just talk about body and soul. But um, let's move along. That was not helpful, but let's move along anyway. Um, 
because he wished to justify himself, he said to Jesus. In other words, to make himself appear just. Who is my neighbor? This is this is uh, this is classical. Um, so often, when we ask for um, clarification about our moral responsibility, it's because we want to avoid moral responsibility. Uh, how far must I go? Uh, and no farther. Well, I talked about Samaritans and uh, in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I talked about the Samaritans. They were the enemies of Israel. They a mutual hatred between them. And uh, the wonder of this um, is that the Samaritan was able to see the humanity of, of the Jew. Whereas a, a, a priest happened to be going down that road, and a Levite came by. Why did they mention priests and Levites? Well, priests and Levites had a they had a good excuse. They had a very good excuse. Uh, they, a priest to this day, a person, if you meet a Jewish person whose last name is Cohen or Kogan or Kaplan, they are thought to be physically descended, and there is genetic evidence that they are. There's such a thing as a Cohen gene. They're physically descended from, from Aaron the priest. And a Levite is from the tribe of Levi. And they, to this day, may not be in the presence of death. A person, a man whose last name is Cohen, if he is an Orthodox Jew, will only go to the funeral of his wife or one of his children. He will not go to the funeral, or, or a parent. He won't go to the funeral of a cousin, because he's not to be in contact with death. The purification rituals, when you're in contact with death, if you were a priest or a Levite, someone who served in the temple, these were arduous and, and very difficult. So you avoided death. Well, to go and, you know, you see somebody laying over the side of the road, you don't know he's dead or alive. They had a very good reason not to be helpful, a religious reason, no less. But it's interesting. They were going down the road. If they were going up the road to Jerusalem to perform their priestly duties, well, that might be one thing, but they were going down the road. In other words, they were going to Jericho. They were done with their service in Jerusalem. But still, they had to respect their calling, so I can't help you. Well, a Samaritan, um, without those fine religious scruples, um, uh, went and helped this this fellow, uh, and he went above and beyond. Uh, so, we're going to see the contrast with Jonah as we see Jonah. He's hoping that the people to whom he's preaching don't get saved. He is very angry about this. We can see that he's not a physical coward. He said, "Throw me over, throw me overboard." No, no, he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. That's why he hated the Assyrians, and we're going to see that as the as we see the rest of this story as it unfolds during the week. But it wasn't fear; it was hatred. He didn't mind getting killed. But he hated these people. And uh, we look at this. I've shared with you a definition of love a hundred times, a thousand times, that St. Thomas Aquinas says love is to will the good of another. I don't will my enemy's good. I don't will. That's what an enemy is, someone who, who, to whom you will harm. And that's forbidden to us. Even those people with whom we most violently and vehemently disagree politically or theologically, it is our duty to will their good. Lord, bless them. Bless them good. <laughs> you can pray that way, but bless them. 
So uh, that's how do you how do you will the good of God? He doesn't need my willing his good. Oh yeah, he's a parent. In other words, if you want to to love God, how are you going to will his good? Only by willing the good of his children. You know as well as I do. If you're good to my kids, if you treat them well, if you if I can trust my kids with you, uh, then you know that I love you and that you're going to love me. Uh, so how are you treating God's kids? All of them, even the ones who you don't like. That's that's what Jonah's problem was. It wasn't that he was afraid. It's that he didn't like them. And that's usually my problem. <laughs> you know, have you ever heard that story of two monks walking in the in the courtyard of the monastery and one of them says to the other, you know, of all the people I love in this world, I love Brother Timothy the least. <laughs> that's sort of who we are. Right, let us, I think, speaking of love, it's time to go to mass hysteria. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. To be alive and feeling free, and to have everyone in our family to be alive in every way. Oh, how great it is to be alive. You know, there is a saying that I perhaps have shared with you. Food and music should not hurt, especially church music. I was listening to horror stories and actually experienced them this weekend myself. You know, the general instruction to the Roman Missal says that there should be silence before Mass for people to prepare for the liturgy. Music directors, calling all music directors, listen up. The five minutes before Mass are not a time for you to play mood music with which to impress the people. Read the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the new Mass, as we call it, the Novus Ordo. That mood music that you love to play isn't appropriate. The prelude before Mass? Well, that's part of the liturgy. No, it's not. Stop it. And I feel sorry for the clergy, myself included, because we don't like to make anybody mad. You know, we we uh, we like people liking us, but um, well, especially music directors, because they have a way to take revenge on us. Uh, I, I'm I'm being a little irritating here, but yeah, don't do it. Don't do the mood music. And people of God, when you go into church, shut up and let people prepare to pray. Um, that's just okay. Well, let's get back to the mess. You know, I have a theory. Take it with a couple grains of salt, because I may be wrong about this. But, you know, the sign of the cross, we start the Mass in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't think we started the Mass that way at the beginning, uh, because um, uh, we didn't do the sign of the cross. The sign of the cross developed very early on, but it was originally made just as a cross on the forehead. And then it expanded to what we have now. So I have a feeling that the cross, uh, the cross ourselves happened a little later than the earliest, earliest moments of the Mass. I suspect that the earliest Mass, or the earliest part of the Mass, was simply, let us pray, and then the collect. In other words, the prayer of gathering. That's what. That's why we call it the collect. It collects people. Uh, and then we do the readings. But, so that we shouldn't do the prayers at the foot of the altar. On the contrary, if I could put one thing back, well... It's about three or four things I would put back in the new Mass from the old Mass. Um, and the prayers at the altar are certainly among them because uh, 
the prayers at the foot of the altar are a preparation for Mass. And how do you prepare for Mass? With Psalm 42. Um, judge me, O God, and discern my cause uh, among a people who are not holy. From the man of iniquity, who I am, and, and the, the, uh, um, the unjust man, uh, the, the deceitful man, deliver me. And I'm the unjust man. I'm the deceitful man. I'm the man of iniquity. I'm asking God to deliver me from myself. And I think in these times, it is a very useful thing to have us priests remember that we're sinners about to do something very great and very wonderful. But we don't talk about that anymore. The prayers at the foot of the altar, uh, we've kind of truncated them, but it was it would have been absolutely ne- absolutely natural for someone who was Jewish to prepare to pray by praying a psalm. And that's what happened. They prayed a psalm, and then they said, let us pray. And to it was added a litany, Lord have mercy, and eventually was was added the Gloria, which wasn't, I think, probably wasn't written till at least mm, the 200s, maybe late 200s, maybe even 300s. Uh, I'd have to look that up. But... Uh, that's my theory, but this fits in nicely because you got to prepare for Mass, and that doesn't mean with mood music. Go into church, sit in silence, maybe read that wonderful, wonderful psalm the, uh, that we used to use, the, the 42nd Psalm, uh, as a preparation for Mass. That, that's the ancient preparation for Mass. Mood music, even if it's that wonderful song, To Be Alive, it's not appropriate. All right, let's we, let's go. We're, we're going to go to a break, and I'll come back with lots of letters. And you can call in at eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Yes, I want to see my Jesus shake his hand and have him greet us when they ring those golden bells for you. We're back, I think. The voice might saying the mic is hot. I don't think it's that hot. I'm, just, I'm kidding. All right. Well, let's go to uh, uh, let's go to letters. I've got some wonderful letters today. Oh, good grief. I got more wonderful letters. They keep coming. My goodness. All right. Uh, this is from uh, Brenda. Let's see here. Let me pull it down here. Okay. Um, uh, let's see the question here. The, the question, two readings this week, last week, that is. Uh, Luke 9, 31, 36, and Luke 10, 1, 12. In the latter, Jesus instructs his messengers to shake off the dust of the towns that reject them and likens the fate of those towns to Sodom. In the former, Jesus rebukes James and John for their very Sodomesque condemnation of the town that rejected them. Could you please explain the distinction? Yes, Jesus says it will be worse for them on the day of judgment. The disciples wanted them, he wanted them kaput, just, you know, smeared now. 
And and Jesus said, no, no. You see, the Lord does not will the death of a sinner, but there does come a, you'll forgive the phrase, a drop-dead date. Uh, uh, the Lord does not want to call down fire on our enemies now. He wants to convert them in the hope that on the day of redemption they will be saved. That's the difference. Uh, that, that when a person has made their final decision, God, in his love, gives them what they want. And some of us have chosen hell. But the disciples wanted to hurt them. Jesus wanted to save them. That's the difference, I think. Okay, now, oh, this is, uh, this is, uh, let's see here. This is from, from Rob. Let's see here. Hold on, hold on. Oh, I got to get to the bottom of the scrolling. Okay. Um, he mentioned, uh, 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 Rob, if you're listening, uh, he's the one who suggested that, that, uh, glorious song, uh, to be alive. We actually sang that and played that. Uh, so yeah, it was a hideous song, which barely mentioned anything vaguely religious. <sighs> All right. So Rob, I played it. There you go. Um, now let's see here. This is from um, this is from I think Rebecca. Oh, good grief! All right, okay. Um, one of she's a homeschooling mom. Rebecca is one of the books my fifth graders were reading this year. Brings up the Waldensians tangentially. From a Protestant point of view, can you give me some greater background in this group? Yes. And how were they treated by the Catholic Church? So I can better explain to my kids. This is a very appropriate thing to talk about today. Uh, the Waldensians, they were, they were a group established, uh, with the best of intentions by, uh, a fellow, I think is the founder was, uh, Peter Waldo. In, in in 1173, the voicemail said, yeah, they all start that way, which is exactly the point. Peter Waldo founded it, and uh, I, the, he lived in southern France, and it, it spread through Europe. It was, it was an attempt at a reform of the church. Peter Waldo was a wealthy merchant who gave away his property around 1173, and he preached apostolic poverty as the way to perfection. You know, when Jesus, when we read in the scriptures, uh, <clears throat> take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor— we think that that's, there are some people in history who have thought that's a universal mandate. If you look in the scriptures, at one point Jesus says to the rich man, uh, if, you would be, if you would reach the goal, that's what he means, if you would be perfect, if you would reach the goal, which is what to be perfect means in, in Greek, uh, then sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. Then he meets. Remember, he meets the the fellow in in the uh, in the in the tombs, the the gathering demoniac who has nothing. He doesn't even have clothing, and he would break the chains they'd put on him. And he wants to follow Jesus. And when he's healed, when he's delivered from demons, and Jesus says, "No, go home to your family." In other words, Jesus restored the demoniac to his relationships and possessions. Jesus said to the rich man, give up your relations and possessions. He wants us to be free. Possessions weren't a problem for the demon-possessed man. Uh, his responsibilities were. Possessions were enslaving the rich man. So I've, when asked, can the Christian own property? Of course the Christian can own property, but it's a terrible thing when the property owns the Christian, which often happens. So Peter Waldo believed that that was a universal uh, imperative. And 
uh, he's really contemporary with St. Francis of Assisi, whose feast we celebrate today. And Francis of Assisi looked for church approbation, and he he looked for the approval of men who were not necessarily virtuous men in the hierarchy. Now, we treated the Waldensians very shabbily until uh, a fellow called, oh, what was his name? Oh, gosh. Uh, the... the uh, um, he, Angelo uh, Angelo Carletti di Chivasso, uh, who reached a peace accord with with Walden, Waldensians. However, they they became very political very quickly, and uh, at one point they they took over the city of Buda, as in Budapest, and uh, they became very involved in the politics of of the Middle Ages, uh, whereas uh, the Franciscans, at least St. Francis, did not. So they had, they had the same, not exactly the same goal. They wanted you to be poor as well as them, whereas St. Francis just said, the Lord's called me to this. You be faithful to what the Lord has called you. So uh, we have to admit that, that uh, many, many uh, Catholics treated them very shabbily. There were There were heretic trials and burnings and all that. But on the other hand, they also um, uh, kind of launched into the political structure of the time. And so many of the of the atrocities that for which the church is blamed were really political atrocities. So I don't know if that helps Brenda, but um, or Rebecca rather, but it's it, I think it is interesting. Okay, how are we doing time-wise? Okay, I, I think I can do a couple more. Okay, um... This is from, let me see, this is, uh, okay, uh, this is from, from uh, Father Mike, who's a friend who writes, he lives out on the West Coast, um, and uh, he, he was talking about uh, uh, the uh, 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 different institutes about the liturgy, but uh, he mentioned some of the things he's witnessed in uh, in one parish. All of the lay ministers are dressed in albs and cinctures. They pro- they process in with the celebrant, and they all sit in the sanctuary. And um, you know, there's just this this um, um, desire to to uh, um, uh, sort of diminish the role of the priest, and one would think that's a noble thing. <sighs> In Germany, they are discussing whether or not priests are necessary. And, uh, well, I kind of think we are. And that means we're also responsible. To diminish, I think, to diminish the role of priests is to diminish their responsibility um, and and the call for holiness in the life of the priest. But, ah, so, well, thanks, Father Mike. That was, uh, um, I, I have to think more about all this. Let's see here. Um this is, uh, let's, no, not that one. I don't want to do that one because I need to research that one a little more. All right, let's see here. Um, uh, this is someone who called uh, regarding the communion antiphon being spoken prior to or during the priest consuming the Holy Eucharist. If a choir is doing it, it could be, I think, done during the priest's consuming the Holy Eucharist. If the priest recites it, it's usual to recite it after uh, he's received Holy Communion, or the whole congregation has received Holy Communion. I don't know what the rubrics are, and the reason I'm reading that is if someone does know about the rubrics, 
when is the is there a precise time for the recitation of the communion antiphon, which is of course a solemn part of the scripture? It's usually if it's recited, it's usually done after communion, before the communion prayer. Uh, if a choir is doing it, it's appropriate to do it uh, after after the uh, Lord, I am not worthy. That's that's how I have been kind of raised on it. All right, we're going to go to a break, and we'll come back with a word of the day. And uh, you can call in again at 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Avinu malkeinu Avinu malkeinu This is a beautiful, beautiful song that's sung during the, the Jewish holy days that we have just finished a, a while ago. And I was listening to this this morning, and, and it, it made me very sad um, because, in a sense, it's the Our Father. There are different texts to it, but Avinu Melchenu means Our Father, Our King. And it's it's a beautiful thing. Chatanu Lefanecha, we've sinned against you. Avinu Malchenu, Ein La Nu Melech, Ela Ata. So um, it's, it's, we have no king but you. And it just, I was reading this uh, and, and listening to this beautiful Avinu Malchenu, one of the beautiful Jewish melodies. And it just struck me that, that um, uh, when the Sadducees, and remember, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees said, we have no king but Caesar. Um, that was a denial of who they were. And I, I, I don't say that because of Jews. This is not a Jewish show, despite what you may think. I say it because of us. We have no king but Caesar. That's what we say all the time. We don't say it in those words. But uh, increasingly, church bureaucracies, I'm just being honest, uh, uh, seem to imitate uh, legal bureaucracies. We, have, we must obey the laws of the country in which we find ourselves unless they are immoral. And, um, you know, we have no earthly city here, the Bible says, and we have no king but the Lord. And sometimes when we act in a way that that imitates the Sadducees, that we want to please the government, that it might go easy with us, well, we're doing what the Sadducees did when they denied Christ. It just struck me like a thunderbolt this morning as I was listening to Avinu Malchenu, Ein Lanu Lo Melech, Ein Lanu Melech Ela Atah. There's no king, but we have no king but you. 
Ooh, so I just thought I'd make that the word of the day because it really hit me as a word this morning. All right, 888-914-914-9888-9149. Let's go to phone calls. Oh, the nativity sets. I forgot. The, these wonderful, uh, this is, uh, we, uh, we uh, basically we're doing this every, every year. We, we are giving away, giving away, uh, um, uh, outdoor nativity sets to put on your lawn. <laughs> I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz used to love to go up to, uh, to, uh, drive in, in, in winter and see all the, or Christmas and see all the, the Christmas displays. He was ultra orthodox, but he thought they were wonderful. And, uh, he called them getchkillers, which means the little Christian gods. I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but no, get your getchkilla, get your nativity set. Um, uh, they were giving it away to 200 lucky listeners. So register to win a set at relevantradio.com slash nativity. You have only until midnight central time, October 15th to get your nativity set. Or as Rabbi Lefkowitz would call them your getchkillas. Oh, oh dear. Maybe we should add something if they can remember the word getchkilla. All right. Let's move along to phone calls. The fan is ringing. <laughs> uh, Richard and Pierre, how are you? What can I do for you? Uh, Father, I am uh, Prince of Distractions when it comes to prayer. Oh, good. And so <laughs> I'm wondering about this passage in Luke chapter thirty, chapter two, verse thirty-five. So that, well, excuse me. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted. And you yourself, a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The thoughts of many hearts. Uh, I hope that doesn't mean somebody's reading my thoughts when I'm distracted. Well, what do you think? the Lord does. Uh well, I, the Lord knows everything you're thinking. Uh, uh, the devil doesn't. So um, uh, the, the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. You know, ultimately, though, I think we have to be conscious that there's nothing Jesus says clearly. There's nothing secret now that won't be revealed. You know, you're going to know everything about me. I'm going to know everything about you because the Bible says we will know as we are known. I think that's important to understand that that um, this idea of privacy ain't no such thing. Now, I think a lot of people theorize that confessed sin, I know that confessed sin is not available to the devil. Um, that's uh, uh, experience, uh, the, my limited experience in exorcism, talking to exorcists, that uh, I remember when I was assisting an exorcist, he would go to confession to me and I would go to confession to him because you darn well better be in a state of grace if you're doing an exorcism. And the devil has no power uh, to reveal uh, sin that has been uh, confessed and sacramentally absolved. However, however, in the long run, everything will be revealed. Well, I thought that if I'd gone to confession, that, that the sin won't be revealed at the last judgment. Oh, it'll be a cause for rejoicing. You see, our sins become a cause for rejoicing when they are repented. You see, when I stand before the tribunal of God, and the angels and the saints and everybody who's ever been born is is listening to my particular judgment. Um, I won't be embarrassed. I will be filled, filled with joy. 
because look at this wonderful thing. I did this and God forgave me and renewed and restored me. Isn't that wonderful? I will rejoice. Even, uh, you know, St. Augustine said, oh, happy sin that merits such salvation about the sin of Adam. So, yeah, yeah, there are people listening to your inner thoughts, but they're listening at the end of time and they're rejoicing over every sin that, for which you have repented. Does that help? Uh, yes, but uh, Simeon is speaking to Mary. Uh, yes, I'm just wondering if if, if, if well, Mary you know, is. It is interesting to me. Oh, if she is, she's a loving mother. I wouldn't worry about it. But it is interesting how in our times, I don't know if this is true uh, forever or ever and ever. Uh, what people think of the Blessed Mother is very important spiritually. You know, you cannot love the church if you don't love the Blessed Mother. That's been my experience. And priests who have great difficulties uh, very often don't have a devotion to the Blessed Mother. I was, we were actively discouraged from devotion to the Blessed Mother when I was young in seminary. And I have refound her. I mean, I was, of course, as a child in the 50s, I was raised with a devotion to the Blessed Mother. But in my adult life, because of the Spanish uh, devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, I rediscovered a mother. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I very honestly have to say that I have, every day I understand more fully the importance of her role in our salvation. She's not our savior, but she sure did help. <laughs> and from, from, from giving birth to Christ and the wood of the manger to standing at the wood of the cross. Um, uh, so, you know, if, if our blessed mother is eavesdropping on your confessions, be glad because she'll help you. She's a very good mother. So I hope that helps a little. So, you know, I don't know who's listening, but ultimately everybody's going to hear. So I darn well better repent. <laughs> so I hope that helps a little. Of course, it might make people. I heard one, someone say when I was a little kid and they said, God is watching. It felt creepy. And then I realized, of course, God is watching me. He loves me. He can't take his eyes off me. So, and that's true for all of us. So I hope that helps a little. Uh, uh, the right to privacy is maybe guaranteed in America, but not in the kingdom of God. All right, who have we got now? Who have we got now? Tom from what, Frostbite Falls? No. <laughs> Tom, are you with us? From Cross Lake. Oh, Frost yeah, Lake. From Cross Lake. Oh, Frost Lake, not Frostbite Falls. Frostbite Falls, yes. Speaking of property, Father, I've got Go a good one for you. Yes. Well, speaking of property, okay. I have a good one for you. Uh, how do we as lay people care for relics? And are, are Catholics, I mean, do we own them? And I, I have a follow-up as well. <laughs> I, you know, that's an interesting thing. I don't know that we own them. We're, we're caretakers for them. Because uh, um, uh, I, in a certain sense, we own them because we're responsible for them. And what we should do is keep them in a place where they can be venerated, and if not, keep them in a safe and respectful place, a special box, uh, in a special drawer. But uh, the best thing would be to have them in a place uh, um, where they can be venerated. You know, that, uh, for instance, we always had a little statue of the Blessed Mother at home in a niche uh, that we had, and... and uh, if there were relics, they would be put there. Um, uh, I, I like to keep a relic of the Curie of Ars, 
near me, and that's in a little shelf in my bedroom, um, and a, one of Pius the Tenth. So, uh, yeah, that's does that help? It, it does, and and I, so I have some. I have an elderly friend who has some yeah. heavy hitters of these relics, and oh. you know, as mm-hmm. dementia sets in, and and you know, mm-hmm. so my concern is I, I want to encourage her to make sure these are well first authenticated and then properly cared for, but it's it's yeah. difficult because you know people have an attachment, and I don't want to be the guy that's trying sure. to get her to part with them. But I also want no, to no. encourage the proper care and handing on. Well, what I would do is say, you know, you've got a lot of relics here, and they're very special. So what I think we should do is get all of the papers for the documentation, uh, um, uh, you know, the, all the papers with the relics, and put them in a special box right near your bed. Uh, you get a nice, a nice wooden, you know, uh, ornamental box and put the anything that you know a lot of times relics come with papers of documentation those tend to get lost wouldn't it be nice to have them right by your bed to remind you that you're never alone and then uh, if you want me to take care of them later i will then that's what i would do does that help oh that helps that 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 helps a lot you know i i knew i'd get good advice yeah get her to use those relics from father know it all <laughs> well, of course, that's 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 the Reverend Know It All. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, yeah, that and the buck twenty-five will get you on the bus. So, uh, well, well, thank you, and and I would I would you know uh, uh, I would um, then I would either take care of them myself or give them to a, a local parish, but whatever is appropriate. So, all right, well, thanks for calling in. Um, I think uh, that the, who we got now. Catherine from the Bay Area. That's of course San Francisco Bay. I'm I'm thinking it's not Green yeah. Bay, is it? <laughs> How are you doing, Catherine? San Francisco, <laughs> not Green Bay. My well, Green Bay is the Bay Area. No. You're just a smaller bay. But <laughs> what can I do for you, Catherine? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I have a um, question about if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, distributiveness that the church uh, encourages yes. that that is the way we should be able to uh, eventually have our uh, economics rather than capitalism or socialism. But could you explain how it works? I mean, what kinds of actions would lead to that? I mean, maybe uh, unions and, uh, you know, how do we get there? Okay, yes. Um, The... the Distributism is the idea that the more private property you can get into the hands of people, the better. Smaller is better. If you have the choice of going to a big box store or the Ma and Pa hardware store, the more moral thing to do, if possible, is to go to uh, um, the Ma and Pa store. In big, well, people say it's not practical because we have these big conglomerates in order to manufacture the things we need. Employee-owned businesses tend to be distributist because, you see, laissez-faire capitalism, in other words, hands-off capitalism, whatever the, you know, uh, state socialism, uh, they end the same way with the means of production in the hands of a very few people. You want to put the means of production into as many hands as possible. A farmer's market 
where the farmer actually grows his tomatoes instead of eating the ones instead of giving you the ones that are strip mined in Texas. That's that's better. Smaller is better. That's that's the, uh, almost a distributist principle. And if it has to be large, employee owned is better. You know, unions often kind of um, don't work. I, I personally think that uh, uh, when they're done right, they work fine. But very frequently, a small group of people uh, end up controlling uh, um, uh, a union. So this is a very important, very important idea. Uh, and ultimately, uh, America attained its greatness by being a distributist country. And that kind of ended in the in the late 19th century. But, um, you know, the indigenous people here uh, died <laughs> nine out of ten. It was a, uh, the Native American Holocaust. And it wasn't because of wars, because of European diseases. But that meant that everybody could have his own farm. Well, now people don't have their own farm. They, they have sold their land to big factory farms. And... Um, uh, the, the bigger is not better. So does that help explain distributism a little bit? Yeah, I, I understand now a little bit better. But what are the uh, yeah. proactive things besides going to, you know, mom and pop and smaller things? Do you think the yeah. antitrust laws? Oh, we've only got 15 seconds. You know, maybe I can talk a little bit more about distributism later. But smaller in general is better. That's a distributist idea. And uh you know, private property is sacred in distributism. Well, maybe I can talk about it tomorrow.